invite you to turn to Job chapter 2 this morning. Job chapter 2. We finished our study in Mark last week, but we had started Job a few weeks before that. So I want to continue our study through there and for the next eight weeks as well. Job chapter 2. If all those who call themselves Christians were to make formal vows with God at the moment that they began their relationship with Him, wouldn't those who call themselves Christians, the key word is call themselves Christian, um, wouldn't they sound, these vows sound something like this? I take you to be my Savior. I will love you all the days of my life as long as you grant me success at my job, as long as I have a good financial position, as long as I have good health and popularity. I take you, God of my own making, to have and to hold from this day forward or until I discover something I don't like about you, for better or for best, for richer or for richest, in physical fitness and in health, until death I do part, or if something happens that makes me want death over being in the relationship with you, at which time I have the desire or the, the, the right to break this commitment." Sadly, that is the way that many people view their relationship with God. I will serve God as long as He fill in the blank. As long as He does something for me. We have become so self-absorbed in our society. And the sad truth is, is the things that I just mentioned here in this vow are not very different among professing believers. We come to our relationship to God and it's not very different from the relationship that we have with many of the other things that we have in the Lord in the world. That everything in life is here to serve me. That the grocery stores have been erected so that I can have something close to my house and get food as I need it. That that uh, there's a gas station on every corner so that when my gas tank gets down below the E, I can stop at any moment and get some more gas. That, that we have restaurants that can instantly create a full meal to satisfy the first sign of grumbling in my tummy. And so why would we think any differently about God? That many times we see that God exists for me. That God exists for us. So we're happy to enter into a vow with Him because, hey, He's going to satisfy my needs. It's like signing up for a timeshare. Yeah, that's something that I would want and enjoy. I'd be happy to do that. God will serve what I want. But that works when times are good. But that commitment breaks down when the storms of life come. And that's why our the, the vow that I read is for rich or for riches, for physical fitness and in health. It's talking about the times when we're doing great, but when when things start, start to go other than the way that we expected it or we planned, then that commitment quickly breaks down. When our family relationships get strained, when our job is not leading us on the fast track of success, when our health is at a point where we would rather die than go through the amount of pain that we're experiencing, that commitment breaks down. And we ask ourselves, what's changed? What has changed in all this? It's not me. I haven't done anything any differently. 
I thought God was here to serve me. I am glad to commit myself to him as long as he's willing to serve me. Now, with Job, he is completely different than that, than that mentality that I just explained. Job loses everything, but he is unlike most of modern Christendom. He didn't see God as serving him, but he saw himself as serving God. In the most powerful way that we see Job's faith shown to us is at the very instant when all is taken away. He gets down on his knees, he, he grieves, and then he says, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away at the end of chapter 1. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the writer says, in all this, Job did not sin. See, Job wasn't living for the gifts. Job wasn't living for the good things that he was receiving from his God. He was living for God. So that when those things are taken away, when the tough times come, he can still have that firm commitment to God because he's not living for the gifts. He's living for the giver. Who is this God and where is he in the darkest of valleys? Where is he in the darkest of trials that we walk through? Well, Job 2 helps to show us more about who God is and where he is when tough times come. Let's read the entire chapter beginning with verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky, and they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. What we should learn from the life of Job is that our desire for God must 
be greater than our desire for good health. Our desire for God must be greater than our desire for good health. The conversation begins between God and Satan in verses 1-6. through Again, Satan presents himself before the Lord in verses 1 and 2. The conversation here closely parallels what's going on in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Let me just point your attention to that. And if you notice in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, much of the same words that were used in chapter 2 were also used in chapter 1. Satan's coming before the Lord. God says, where have you come from? He says, roaming about all the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Both times, God is the one who brings up Job. You want to see someone who is upright, who is blameless, who fears me and turns away from evil? He says this two times. Look at Job. Job is your man. Satan says, well, of course he is in chapter 1. He's got all these great possessions. Who wouldn't serve you with all that stuff? You're not worthy to be served, God, apart from those things. So take away all those things and see what happens. God says, fine. Take away all of his possessions and see what happens. Job, or, uh, Satan believes that Job will curse God to his face. And as we learned a few weeks ago, he did not. Instead, he praised God. He worshipped God. Here we have it happening a second time that Satan comes to present himself before the Lord. And then in verse 3, notice God again. Chapter 2, verse 3, God again. Um, presents Job as a trophy of his grace. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited incited me against him to ruin him without cause. This man is an upright man. He is a righteous man. He serves me because of me because of the work that I have done in him. And although you took all of his possessions from him, and although you thought that he was going to curse me to my face, he still, verse 3, he still holds fast his integrity. Instead of responding with cursing to me, giving up on our relationship, breaking this commitment, instead of that, he worshipped me. He showed you and me and all the angels who are watching that He is a man who loves me for me. Notice in the second part of verse 3 that God stands behind those first calamities that came upon Job. second part says, And He still holds fast His integrity, although you, Satan, incited me against Him to ruin Him without cause. God here accuses Satan of trying to discredit the Lord. God is accusing Satan of saying, you're trying to incite Job against me. And so that's why I allowed you. That's why I say God takes responsibility. He stands behind it, in a sense, what happened to Job. God cannot be stirred up to do anything against His will. And so when Satan said, well, why don't you take away all of his possessions at the end of chapter 1, God was not having his arm twisted. No, God was doing something for a purpose. And that's why he says at the end of the verse that you tried to incite me against him to ruin him. Notice the last two words. Without cause. 
God and His people never do anything without cause. Everything that happens in life is for a purpose. For, for Satan, the implication is that he does often do things without cause. Well, if that's true, if God wasn't doing this without cause, then why afflict Job? Why take away his family and all of his possessions that he had earned all of, over all those years? Look back to verse 9 of chapter 1. Then Satan answered the Lord. Okay, after God displays him as a trophy of his grace, he's an upright man, he fears me. Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed his works. The work of his hands and his possessions have increased his land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Satan's claim here is that Job serves you for the goods. So why does God allow Satan to afflict Job? Why does God allow Satan to afflict Job's family, to take his family from him and his possessions? The answer is to prove God's worth. That God is worthy to be served apart from the things that He gives and to prove the worth of Job. That God is setting up Job as a trophy of His grace. Look at this man. He serves me because of me. And also to prove Satan's slander. That Satan is really a, a slanderer as he's called in the Scriptures. So God takes responsibility, but not the blame for the four calamities that fell on Job. Notice at the end of verse 3 again, chapter 2. Although you incited me against him to ruin with ruin him without cause. God says, It was you, Satan, that takes the blame for what happened to him. I stand behind it in the sense that I'm sovereign over it. I have control over what happened. I'm the one who extended your power to allow you to do it. But ultimately, Satan, you are to blame. And this really removes Job from any blame of, of the circumstances that came his way. That Job was innocent in his suffering. In verses 4 and 5, Satan takes it one step further. Before he said, Job serves you for the goods. And God said, fine. Give him, or, or take whatever you want from him, but do not touch his, his body. Now Satan says, well, it's because of his health that he still serves you. Look at verse 4. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put, your for, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Satan here is making an accusation against God. He's saying, God, you are not worthy of Job's allegiance apart from what you give him. He only serves you because he's got good health. In verse 4, he says, Skin for skin. This is probably some sort of idiom, um, and it's later explained in the next, the next phrase there, the next sentence. Yes, all that a man has will give for his, he will give for his life. In other words, of course Job serves you. Of course he holds fast his integrity. You took away the skin of his possessions, but take away the skin of his health. 
and see if he's willing to serve you for that. Anyone would give up all that they have for their health, wouldn't they? This is what Satan's saying. But take away the health, and then let's see if he's really an upright man, as you say. If he's really a man who fears God and turns away from evil. Because if you do that, Satan says in verse 5, he will curse you to your face. See, before, Satan thought that Job served God for the possessions, for the family. Now that those are taken away and Job maintains his credibility, his integrity, Job says, well, now it's the health. And so he's like, let's try another experiment. Let's take away his health in verse 5. Why did Satan urge God to take Job's health away? Notice what he says there in verse 5. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, let me put my hand forth now and touch his bone and his flesh. He says to God, put forth your hand. Satan recognized that his own power was limited. That he could not inflict Job in any way unless he got permission from God directly. So he says to God, put forth your hand. He's not trying to accuse him here. He simply recognized God's sovereign control over all things. So he's saying, the only way that I can inflict Job is if you allow me to, if you give me the power to. So he says, so he says in verse 5, let me inflict his bone and his flesh. Simply an expression for his entire body. Notice the difference here in the guarantee. He says at the end of verse 5, He will curse you to your face. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 11. Notice how sure he was before. He says, He will surely curse you to your face. At the end of verse 11. Okay, before, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, touch his possessions, and he will surely, put, he will surely curse you to your face. Well, that didn't happen. Take away his health now, God, and not surely, but he will curse you to your face. He's less sure about the outcome this time. So what does God do? In verse 6, God extends the leash of Satan. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. See, God doesn't correct Job when Job, or excuse me, he doesn't correct Satan when Satan says, put forth your hand, God. No, God says, all right, that power that you're asking for to inflict Job, it's yours. So the leash that Satan is on to inflict whatever type of damage that he inflicts is controlled by God. In other words, God allows him to be released to a certain point and he pulls him back in like a dog on a leash. God is in control of every single act of this universe. He says instead of, uh, instead of uh, correcting Satan, he says, he's yours. Verse 6, only do not touch his life. Similar to what he had said before. Satan asked for permission to touch his possessions. He said, he's yours, except for, except for you cannot touch his body. This time he says, you can go as far, but you cannot touch his life. 
So in chapter 1, we see that God allows Satan to have the power to, to, to accomplish enemy attack right on Job's goods and his servants, that Satan has the power for, to, to produce lightning and fires. Satan has the power to uh, bring a whirlwind, some sort of strong wind, to cause destruction and death. And here we see that God allows Satan to have the power to inflict disease. Paul recognized the same truth in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says the momentary, these momentary light afflictions are, last for only a short time. He recognized that they came from God. In fact, the thorn in his flesh that he received, he, called, he, he said that that was something that was given to him by God. We must understand that, that the power of Satan is limited that God has control over the power of Satan. That Satan's power is limited both in time and extent. In other words, it will run out at some point. There will be a time when Satan's power is no more. And Satan is finally destroyed at the end of the millennium when he is sent into the lake of fire forever. But it's also limited in extent. That it can only go. That Satan can only go as far as God allows him to go. That's what we see here in Job, chapters one and two. You are allowed to do these things, but only this far, he says. Turn to James chapter one, because we need to recognize that Satan's power, that all the power of evil, is a controlled power. It's not as if God is reeling, trying to figure out what is going on as if he's responding in any way. It's all a part of God's perfect plan. He knew about it because he planned it. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Okay, so the first thing we need to understand when it comes to God and His control over the evil things that happen in life is that God cannot tempt anyone. God does not tempt anyone to do evil. But He does have the power over it. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In other words, He has the control over what happens and what doesn't happen. He's not the one that's going to be charged or laid to blame because of the evil that comes into the world. But he does have, he does stand behind it. He does have the authority over it. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen. Let's begin reading in verse twelve. First Corinthians ten, verse twelve. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Okay, so first we see in verse 13 that, there, that these temptations that come our way are common. And then the second part is that God is faithful and He will not allow you to go too far uh, to a place where you are unable to bear the temptation that comes your way. And I've come to a place in my life where I can't handle this anymore, God. 
God says, I won't allow that because I am faithful to my people and to my promises. And so what we see is in the even in the evilest acts of men or even in our own sin, God has control over it in the sense that He allows us only to go so far. Turn back to Job chapter 2. What we learn in Job is a very hard truth, and that is that God permits to happen what will happen. He allows to happen what will happen, what does happen. If God didn't want Satan to attack Job, did God have the power to stop him? If God didn't want Job to, or God didn't want Satan to attack Job's health, could God have stopped him? Okay, we go back to chapter one where we saw that God had a purpose in all this. Job didn't understand it. We didn't understand it. Often, when it comes in our lives, we don't understand. But what we need to understand is that God is in control. And why is that? I mean, is it like two superheroes going at it? A good one and a bad one. Sometimes the bad one takes advantage and then the good one and then the bad one. And hopefully at the end, the the uh, superhero has the best advantage and he gets the victory at the end. Hopefully that's what happens with God and Satan. It's not like that at all. God has it all under control because Satan, remember, is a creature. He is finite. He is a created being. God is not. God is the Creator. God is infinite. You see, Satan is not omnipresent like God. He's not everywhere at once. He is quick. He roams about all the earth very quickly, but he is not omnipresent. God is. Satan is not not omnipotent. He doesn't know everything. God does. God, Satan does have very vast knowledge, probably the most knowledge of any creature. But again, he's a creature. God is omnipotent. Satan is not. Satan is not omniscient. I'm sorry, I was talking about omnipotent. I should have said omniscient. Now, thirdly, he's not, um, uh, he's not um, omnipotent. That is, he doesn't have unlimited power. Satan doesn't have unlimited power. His power is limited. We see that Satan is on a leash in a way. God only allows him to do certain things. So, what we need to learn here is that Satan is not an equal with God. Okay, they're not on the same plane. Satan is a subordinate to God. God is in control of everything. So that means that whatever happens in your life all falls under the purposes, the plan, the control, the power, the knowledge of God. Nothing is outside of that. He knows it all. So that means when Satan seems to be winning in this cruel world, when it seems like Satan has the advantage, we live in a world that is in rebellion against its Creator. When Satan seems to be winning, remember that Satan's power only lasts for a moment. Hey, I don't mean like a moment. You, you may be going through some trial right now and you say it's not a moment. I can tell you that. I'm talking about a moment in comparison to eternity. That ultimate judgment will come upon this creature. 
Satan's power is limited in time and extent. And so God says to him, I release you to his to him, to his body, but do not take his life. And this really made the trial that much more difficult. I mean, how great would it have been for Job to live a righteous life, have this extraordinary event happen against him where he loses all his possessions and family, and die a man who was perfectly righteous. Not not perfectly righteous, but but an upright man. How great would that have been? It wouldn't have the trial wouldn't have been that hard because he only experienced it for a short time, but instead it makes the trial that much more difficult, doesn't it? The fact that he didn't die makes the suffering real. And so in verses seven through nine, Satan attacks Job's health. The question that we have to ask ourselves as we're going through is if Job lost his health, would he also lose his faith in God? Was God worth serving apart from Job's health? Notice the nature of the disease in verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils. It's hard to know exactly what this was. Um, several people try to give it a specific diagnosis. Maybe leprosy or elephantitis or something. It's hard to know exactly, but what we do learn from the rest of Job, in fact, turn to chapter 7, is that it was an extremely excruciating illness, affliction that he had to experience. We see that he has sore boils. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. Job is speaking and he says, My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. So he had these festering, painful sores all over his body. Look at verse 4. In addition to that, when I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing until dawn. Sleepless nights. He has these festering sores, and because of them, he has sleepless nights. And then when he was able to fall asleep, look at verse 13. If I say, My bed will comfort me. If I can just get some rest, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you, God, frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. So apparently when he was finally able to get asleep, they were filled with nightmares. As you can imagine, that the, the whole life was like a nightmare that he experienced. This painful uh, experience that he had to go through. And so when he fell asleep, he was thinking about these things even in his sleep. We know from chapter 30 that the scabs were peeling and becoming black. We know from the end of chapter 2 that he was unnoticeable that he became disfigured because of this illness that when his friends came to look upon him they didn't even recognize him that he had excessive thinness that he was losing weight in a fast pace look at chapter 33 chapter 33 verse 21 Elihu speaking here, he says, His flesh, Job's flesh, wastes away from sight, and his bones which were not seen stick out. Flesh is supposed to cover the sight of our bones, and yet for Job, they were very easily visible because there was no meat on his bones. He had a fever, according to chapter 30. 
And according to chapter 30, verse 17, it was endless pain. And it wasn't as if it was just on one part of his body. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 again. That these sore boils, the end of the verse says, were from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. They were on his entire body. There was no spot on which he could sit or stand or lay where he would have comfort. The pain was, was nearly unbearable. And so Job, verse 8, tries to get relief by using this potsherd, which is just a broken clay pot to scratch himself. He sat in the ashes, which was probably uh, because of what he had done in chapters 1 and 2 when he threw the dust over his head, the ashes, which is a symbol of grieving. And if that weren't enough, then verse 9, his wife tells him to give up. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife is saying, Your integrity, Job, is not the most important thing. Okay, just just finish it off. Finish off this whole ordeal, this whole affliction that's happened to us, our family, our possessions, and now your health. Finish it off by cursing God and causing Him to make you die. Get it over with so you don't have to experience this. And I don't have to see you go through this. She was speaking consistently with what Satan valued, which was the things. And Job... And God, we're saying, no, that's not the most important thing. And you know, cursing God is the advice that many people give today. Well, if your circumstances are not up to par, then curse God. Just get it over with. Stop trying to follow Him. He's not giving you anything. There's nothing coming out of it. I received an email not too long ago. One of these supposedly clever statements read, it's okay to get angry with God. He can take it. I mean, is that wise? To treat God as if He's another creature? God is the God of the universe. He knows what He has planned and He's done it for a purpose and we should not question Him. But here, in verse 10, we see that Job's faith does not waver. And I would encourage you to to memorize this verse. Husband's not the first half. That's not what I'm talking about. It says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. I'm talking about the next part of the verse. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Satan wants Job to give up and prove that God is not worthy to be served. But Job will not. We know this because of what he says here. Woman, wife, Should I accept good from God and not the adversity that comes from the same hand? What he's saying to us and what we should learn is that both good and trouble come from the hand of a loving, sovereign God. Both good and trouble. And so in the form of a question, Job is saying this. We ought to We ought to accept whatever comes from God's hands, no matter if it's good or if it's a trial or whatever it is. How can we not accept whatever He gives to us? Now, how can Job possibly say this? And how can we possibly say this when trials come our way? I mean, was he right 
Maybe he was wrong. Look at the end of the verse. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, Job is confirmed in his accuracy about what he said about God's sovereignty. That in fact, all good does come from God and and all trouble is ultimately a part of his plan. And in what Job had said, it was not wrong for him to say it. Christian, you will not accept adversity from God, especially if you have been promised health and wealth, if you follow God. Or if you've misunderstood God's wonderful plan that He wants you to be happy and have a pleasant life. That if you can just have everything you want, that's not God's plan for you, by the way. God's plan that you are, is that you are holy, that you are presented before Him on that day as righteous. And so if that means that the good is taken away, then God can still accomplish His purpose and fulfill His promise in you. But if you have been promised that you will receive health and wealth as a result of serving God, if I do this, if I serve God, then He will serve me. Because of this false understanding, what happens is our relationship with God breaks down when trouble comes, does it not? We say, no, I can't accept adversity at the hand of God. I will accept good, yes, but when you take the good away, when the adversity comes, I won't accept it. I'll find another God. But on this side of the cross, we of all people should understand that there are many people in the Scriptures who did not experience good, pleasant living in this life. I mean, can you think of someone besides Job who suffered even though he or she was righteous? Jesus Christ. Did He do anything wrong? Did God remove His favor from Jesus Christ in some way? Did God hate Jesus? Was He punishing Jesus? In a sense, yes, He was, but He suffered even though He's righteous is the point that I'm making. We should not think about God in these terms, that he sends, uh, he, he sends only good to us. Because what happens is when adversity comes, when tough times comes, then we change our view of God. And I can tell you that it's much easier to lower your view of God to a God who only gives good than to raise your faith to see God as He is presented in Scripture. And that is that He is both a God who provides good and allows, okay, it's a key word, allows, permits evil in your life. That permits the difficult times. And the only way that we'll accept everything from the hand of God is if we believe and trust that everything comes from the hand of a loving and sovereign God. A God who loves us, yes, and a God who is sovereignly in control of all things. Now let me be clear about this. That just because God is working for our good, Romans 8.28, doesn't mean that everything will be good. I'm not speaking of, and we should not see the Christian life as some sort of utopian, Pollyannish type society mentality that desires uh, 
that, that we, we desire only good and not evil. Or I'm not also suggesting that we desire pain and discomfort. That just bring it on. It's going to be for my good, so I'll take it. Because what we'll see in the chapters to follow is that this is real pain. This is real suffering. It's not something that he's just kind of, oh, that's okay, bring it on. I'm happy to accept it. You see that there's a real struggle going on. But we also must understand that although Job had a happy ending, we may not in this lifetime. Our lives may be ended in the middle of adversity or because of adversity. We may not get everything back that was taken away from us. We may not get all the possessions back, the family, the wealth, the health that Job gets back. But true faith does not see life as puppy dogs and roses. You know, storms do kill people. Enemies do attack and, and, and destroy people and possessions. Cancer does rip through people's body. But the true faith that God demands is faith in Jesus Christ. That not, not that He will get you out of every trouble, but that He will be there with you in those troubles. And that He will use them to accomplish His purposes. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50.20 A right view of God recognizes that justice will finally be done and seem to be done in that last day when Jesus sits on the throne and the pride of men is humbled and the loftiness of men is abased and the Lord alone will be exalted. Isaiah 2, verse 17. True faith in God recognizes God for how He has revealed Himself to us, not with some Pollyannish type of mentality that thinks, oh, well, God's all going to give me all good things. We need to look quickly at verses 11 through 13. I'll just point them out to you. Job receives comfort from his three friends. These three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come from different parts of the country. They're probably all his elders. And their goal in the second part of verse 11 is to go and to sympathize and to comfort him. Good goals. They arrive Verse 12, they don't recognize him because, as I said earlier, he is disfigured. He looks different than he did before. And they are filled with grief with him. In verse 13, notice how they comfort him. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. This was probably to complete the time of mourning. Ezekiel did this when he was meeting the exiles in Babylon. Notice why they did it at the end of the verse. Because they saw that his pain was great. I just want to make a quick point of application that when other people are grieving, when other people are going through tough times, we can learn from these three friends. We would think of these three friends differently if this is how the story ended. Because they don't open their mouth and start accusing Job of something that he did not do. Instead, they come, they sit, and they're silent. They simply cry with Him. They grieve with Him. They bear His burden with Him. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 tells us to do that. And they simply listen. Job is the very first one to speak in Job chapter 3, 
And they simply listen. And you know, when, when other people are struggling, there's not a whole lot you have to say. When you see that their pain is very great, you don't have to come up with some profound statement that I just hope that this is going to be the key to, to bringing them out of their grief. Sometimes it's good to just sit there and listen to them. To be there for them. I can tell you that when people go through difficult times, they will not remember all the little words that you said to them, all the, the, the really significant phrases that you came up with. What they're going to remember is that you were there. That when they were going through trouble, you were there and you were willing to sit and listen. There's nothing wrong with that. Let me leave you with a few points of application to consider. What we see here in this book so far is that there is a category that we often don't think about in the Scriptures for innocent suffering. That there is not necessarily a one-for-one correspondence to everything that we have done. In other words, we sin. The reason that we're experiencing this affliction is because we've sinned. God is punishing us. Now, that does happen in some cases, and we should reflect on that when we're going through trials. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, some of you are sick and some are sleeping, in other words, dead, because you have uh, rejected or haven't thought rightly about the Lord's table. Okay, so, so God does still punish, I guess you could say in a sense, that way. But what we learn from Job is that's not always the case. When we are suffering, when there's something that has happened in our lives, we don't have to say, well, I must have done something. That's what his friends tell him. There is a category for innocent suffering, and sometimes we won't know why we suffered. We simply leave it into the hands of a sovereign, loving God and say, God, I want to have joy in the middle of this suffering, knowing that you will produce patience in me, James chapter 1, verse 5 that you will help me to endure through this. Second point of application is this. Thank God for the restraining power of Satan, his restraining power over Satan and evil. That if it were not for God's restraining power on Satan and evil, things would be infinitely worse than they are now. Your life would be much worse if Satan had unlimited control, but he does have limited control. Thank God for His restraining power. If it were not for God's common grace, then we would be utterly self-deceived and self-destructive. If you want us to get a glimpse of what that looks like in humans, read through Revelation chapter 6 and beyond where you read through the, tri- the tribulation period when Satan's uh, when God's restraining effect is pulled away and Satan is given nearly unlimited power, not completely. <clears throat> Thirdly, at this point you're probably asking yourself some painful questions. I mean, what kind of God is this? I mean, is just using Job as an experiment to show how great he is? What, what kind of God do we serve? Do I have to suffer in order for God to show his worth? Well, I don't have time to answer all those questions. I hope to address them more in the weeks ahead, but I want you to consider at least two things. Number one, we are not God. Okay, that's nothing new. You're thinking, well, thank you for that. But we are not God. We are the clay. He is the potter. How could we ever say to Him, 
Why are you making me this way? Or why did you allow me to be used for this purpose? I don't understand that. How could we ever say that? So in one sense, it's natural for us to desire all the answers, but what happens oftentimes is we want to dethrone God. God, move out of the way because if I were running my own life, if I had complete control, I would do it this way. I wouldn't take all those things from me. I wouldn't take my health from me. I would serve you much better if my life was better. And what we're doing there is we're practicing idolatry. God, you are not supreme in my life. I could do a better job than you. See, God has purposes through your suffering. And although you may never know what those are in this lifetime, you have to recognize that He's not doing it without purpose, as we read. He is God. You are not. Recognize that. Secondly, if Job knew the outcome, it would only lessen the greatness of God. In other words, it wouldn't prove God's greatness if Job knew the outcome. Oh, well, I understand what you're doing now. I see what you're going to do at the end. I see you're going to restore everything. So I can endure it for a little while knowing that you're going to do that. But Job didn't know. Job's friends didn't know. His wife didn't know. And even after he was restored to everything, he still didn't know, as far as we know. But if we knew everything that was going to happen as a result of our suffering, would we continue to follow God? Would we need God? You see, when suffering comes, when things are perplexing in our minds, it forces us to depend upon God. To say, God, I need you during this time. I can't walk through this valley without you. So it forces us to strengthen our grip on God. Not to release it and let it go. I don't need you anymore. So trials are often a way where we actually see the beauty of God in a clearer way than we had ever seen it before. There's three things that we should learn from this book. I'll just mention them quickly. Number one, we often suffer. Number two, we sometimes understand. And number three, we must always trust God. We, we often suffer, we sometimes understand, but we always have opportunity to trust God. If you understand Job in light of those three things, it will open up your eyes to what God is doing in your own life. And you will start to see things in a way that you hadn't seen them before. And you will be able to be a trophy of God's grace as God desires. So I pray that that, that will be what we learn as we go through this study. Let me ask you to bow together with me in prayer. Father, you know how difficult it is to think through these things, that to think through the, the idea that you have any connection to evil. We want to completely disassociate you with it, but as we're learning here in this book that you have a plan for it and that you have ultimate control over it. And, Lord, you know that I have 
likely been inadequate in the way that I've explained these things, and I, I'm sure I haven't answered all the questions that have come up in our minds. But I pray that You would help us not to necessarily want all the answers to come our way or for us to understand all the answers, but at least to be able to ask the right questions and to point our attention to the right place. That we would recognize that the most important thing is not to know all the answers, to be God, to take Your place, but the most important thing is to follow You even when we don't have the answers. And that really is the essence of faith. It is believing in something that we do not see, but we do understand to be true because of uh, the revelation that has come through the Word. May You strengthen our faith. May You prepare those who are not going through significant trials. May You prepare them for those the trials that are to come. And may You strengthen and encourage those who are going through trials now. May You increase their love for You, for Your Word, for our Savior. May they see more clearly that Jesus Christ took the, the brunt of, of our punishment, that we really are not being punished in any of our uh, trials that we're going through because Jesus took all the punishment upon Himself. He took Your wrath upon Himself so that we would not have to. So that means that all these trials that come our way have nothing to do with punishment but have to do with increasing our love and our dependence upon You with presenting us before uh, the demons and the other angels as works of Your grace. Paul says that we are Your workmanship. That as a church, we are Your 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 uh, Your workmanship. We are presented before other people for for uh, their view, so that they can see Your greatness as You change us into the image of Christ. It's an amazing work when we think about it. And if we had it our way, we would do it differently. But I pray that You'd help us to have the faith to believe that You know what is best. That You are the potter and that we should not question You in these things, but trust in You. Understand as much as we can, yes. But in the places where it is a mystery, where, like Job, he doesn't understand, we pray that You'd help us to trust You, knowing that You order our steps and You have control over every circumstance in our life. Give us the eyes to see, the understanding to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.